I uh, haven't prepared a special Father's Day message, uh, but as you can hear in David's prayers, and I'll say now, we're glad you're here if you're a father. We thank you for your faithfulness to your family, uh, and we're just glad you're here. So happy Father's Day, and we'll move on to the Word. Uh, Please stand and read with me. If you'd like to read along, we'll be looking at Hebrews 11, all the way through uh, 12, verse 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared For them, a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, 
Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms Enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, listen here, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, of the throne of God, the Word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, may the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. And may you, through your Holy Spirit, cause our hearts to hear the truth of the gospel today. Amen. David mentioned that uh, it was a privilege to hear me, and you might be doubting that after perhaps the longest standing Bible reading in some time. Our passage this morning has a simple message. It is a tale of two cities, so to say, and its primary message concerns faith. First, it tells us what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, it says, the conviction of things not seen. Second, it reminds us that it is faith that pleases God. By faith, the passage says, 
The people of old received their commendation, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Our passage this morning has a simple message. It is a tale of two cities. There is a city of man and woman founded upon men's ambitions, women's understandings, men's ideologies, women's timing. And there is the city of God. Consider verse 7 if you're reading along. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent, Fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, we don't know much about Noah, and much of what we know, or we think we know, is actually based on folklore. Some of you have probably seen Noah cartoons. And I'm here to tell you that Genesis doesn't tell us whether Noah lived in the desert. Uh, It doesn't tell us if he got made fun of by his neighbors. However, I think we can assume without taking too much improper liberty, that building a boat big enough to fit every type of animal on earth was not and will never be a popular and respectable decision. Rather, what we know for sure is that Noah believed God, even concerning quite extraordinary events, and for this God rewarded him. Forced to choose, Noah picked God's city, not the city of man and woman. Once again, our passage this morning has a simple message. It is a tale of two cities. Consider verse 8 if you're reading along. By faith it says Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And then in verse 10. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Much like with Noah, it's difficult to say much about Abraham's culture and time with too much confidence. We simply don't know much about Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham's birthplace. We're not sure exactly where it was. Thus, we don't know much about its history, its language, its customs. However, it is difficult to imagine that leaving home and traveling more than a thousand miles by foot, and I might add with tons of sheep, was ever or will ever be the quickest path to worldly success. Given a choice between the two, Abraham chose God's city, not the city of man and woman. Then there's Sarah in verse 11. If you're reading along, you can read here. By faith, it says, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even though she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Here we can have a little more certainty about the outline of the story. Women don't tend to live to 90, though that's quickly becoming not true. Nor do they tend to have many children at that age. You might say AARP medical insurance doesn't usually cover maternity expenses. But according to Genesis, Sarah not only lived to 90, but had a child at 92. And this was the result of her faith. Faced with the possibilities typical of this life and the possibilities provided by God, Sarah chose the latter. That is, she chose God's city, not the city of man and woman. And her faith gave birth to descendants as many as the stars of heaven, the scriptures say. I want to ask today, in several different ways, how do people get there? 
How do they come to believe God's promises in spite of everything united against them? How do we choose God's city? The writer of Hebrews says something of this in verse 13. If you look along, these all died in faith, he writes, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In verse 15, the writer continues, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, you see. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Once again, our passage this morning has a simple message. It is a tale of two cities. And what about Moses? Look at verse 24. It tells us that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, greater, rather, he considered Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Again, Moses chose God's riches, God's rewards, over those offered by what was then the richest nation on earth. Leaving Egypt for a tent in, a, in the desert was something like leaving a penthouse on Fifth Avenue for a tent somewhere near Marfa. But offer the choice between a life of luxury and sin in Pharaoh's household or a life that honored God, Moses chose the latter. Again, that is, he chose God's city. Like I said, our passage this morning has a simple message. It is a tale of two cities, a vibrant portrayal of the difference between following God and following mammon, that is, money, wealth, esteem, and all those other things that we so often are attracted to. Again and again, this passage puts on display the difference it makes when you look forward to God's city, a city with foundations, as the title of this sermon is called. When you're looking toward God's city, you'll often have to leave the values of the city of man and woman behind. Now, uh, there may be no perfect pattern or system of sermon preparation, but as a young preacher prepares for a Sunday sermon, he ought to at least do one thing, that is, he ought to not put off his preparation for the last minute. Uh, I have transgressed this single rule. Uh, I haven't been lazy exactly. I haven't whittled away the hours playing video games, although I would have liked to. Rather, I have been absolutely transfixed by the news coming minute by minute out of Iran. The events unfolding in Iran this week are centered around a city too, you know. And the question, I think, on so many people's minds in Iran is, what kind of city will Tehran be? For those of you who have not been able to follow the events this week, let me catch you up to speed just briefly. You see, the electoral process in Iran is very different from our own. In America, any candidate who can pay a relatively modest filing fee can run in local, regional, or national elections. But it's not so in Iran. In Iran, each candidate for office is vetted by a series of interlocking Islamic councils and officials. Only candidates who meet certain criteria determined by those in control in the Islamic leadership are allowed to run in popular elections. So you can see how easy it might be to arrange an election so that a preferred candidate wins. If there is a candidate with a good chance to win the election, but he or she does not share the values and convictions of the ruling Islamic elite, that person is simply barred from running. Now, at the center of the present events are two candidates for the office of president. One of them, I've been working very hard on this all week, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, is the preferred candidate of many 
in the Islamic elite, particularly those of a decidedly more conservative and aggressive bent. The other, Mir Hossein Musavi, is what is called in Iran a reformer. Okay, so that means though he shares these very conservative Muslim beliefs, uh, he has a favor for more personal freedoms like uh, freedom of expression uh, and a more open disposition toward the West. It, you know, there's discussion this week about whether or not it'll be that much different, but it's a different style perhaps. But still, he's a political insider, this guy, Musavi. Uh, he was an important part of this 1979 Islamic revolution in Iran, and he has served previously as prime minister of the country. He was allowed on the ballot for two reasons, I think. One, because though he's a reformer, he's supportive of the system, generally. And second, and I think more importantly, because nobody in the clerical elite actually thought he could win. And for those of you beginning to get bored, by the way, uh, stay with me for one second longer. This does have a point, I promise. Uh, what nobody expected was that in the days leading up to elections last Friday, there would be a huge swell of support for this guy, Musavi. Millions of Iranians, it seems, were tired of the repressive and bullying stance that President Ahmadinejad has taken in both domestic and international matters. Polls began to show that Musavi might actually win, and news outlets all over the world started reporting on the election with great anticipation last week. On election day, however, it appears there was a massive fraud by the ruling Islamic elite in Iran, who announced an impossibly large victory for President Ahmadinejad within two hours of the closing of poll stations. Incensed by this seeming fraud, Iranians began to take to the streets of Tehran and other cities in protest numbering in the hundreds of thousands or perhaps even in the millions. Stick with me one second longer. <laughs> Two days ago, Friday, the supreme leader of Iran, he stands even above the president in the governmental structure of this country. He stated in his Friday sermon that protests would no longer be allowed and that anyone who continued to protest would be subject to violent attack. Even as I composed this sermon, I watched videos and viewed pictures that showed this promised violence in full effect. The most graphic of these showed a young woman probably no, no older than 30, I would guess, shot in the chest only moments before the video began, dying as a loved one, perhaps her husband, wept as he cradled her now lifeless body. And around the same time on Saturday that this woman was shot, Mir Hossein Musavi, the reformed political candidate I've been talking about, who's leading these protests, wrote on his Twitter account, I am prepared for martyrdom. Go on strike if I'm arrested, he said. And again, I want to ask this question. What makes people do such things? Why do they walk in the streets under threat of violence and death? What prepares their hearts and minds for martyrdom? By the time we leave church today, there will surely be more news pouring in of arrests, beatings, and murder in that city. Right now, people are dying on the streets of Tehran. Ask yourself, what propels these people to risk their lives? What kind of city do they have in mind? Of course, for some of us, news from Iran may fall too far afield, too far from our own daily experiences to make much sense. So consider another example, more close to home, so to say. I've been reading David McCullough's biography of John Adams, and for several reasons I've found it very difficult to put down. One reason is that I've discovered that the less noble parts of uh, John Adams' character match my own. 
As McCullough writes, he was John Adams of Braintree, and he loved to talk. He was a known talker. There were some, even among his admirers, who wished he talked less. So it's been a comfort to know that even though I too suffer from this character flaw, there may be some hope for me yet. But more than this similarity of personality fault, I've been attracted to the story of John Adams' character, of his inspiring mixture of love of God and his zeal for America. You see, there's a lot of discussion these days about whether the founding fathers were Christians or not, and um, that is a valuable discussion. Uh, But at least in John Adams' case, he was a quiet, living, humble, and kind Christian man. His attendance at church was not compulsory, but was evidence of his true belief in and love for God. Not only his faith, but his passion has inspired me. Writing to his wife Abigail in 1776, he said, I am well aware, listen to this, of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is more than worth all the means, and that posterity will triumph in that day's transaction, even though we should rue it, which I trust in God we shall not. To put it in simpler and more contemporary terms, John Adams could see a city that did not exist. He looked forward through all the gloom, as he says, and marched toward that city, which only existed in his mind, even at great cost. Or consider Martin Luther King, Jr. On April 3, 1968, Dr. King delivered a speech in support of striking members of the Sanitation Workers Union in Memphis. And what has since become an iconic speech, King said, some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop, Dr. King said, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now, he said. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, he said. But I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to that promised land. Dr. King was assassinated the next day, April 4th, on the balcony of a Memphis hotel. Could his words be any clearer? He had seen a city from this mountaintop. He had seen it. And his faith in that city was worth the sacrifice even of his own life. What I find remarkable about all these stories of these brave protesters in Iran... American patriots and civil rights leaders is that such temporary and relative gains could arouse such passions. Surely the men and women suffering violence on the streets of Iran, even as I speak now, know that a better Iran will be far from perfect. Surely John Adams knew that a nation founded on even the highest ideals would still fall short of that more perfect rest he had read of in the scriptures. And surely Dr. King was well aware of the incomplete gains and partial victories that had characterized and would continue to characterize the movement he helped to found. Yet these great men and women brave the streets of Tehran today 
and shine forth in the pages of history because of their faith in a better city than the one they can see. Remember, our message today is a simple one. It's a tale of two cities. So you see, brothers and sisters, that city with foundations, that city whose designer and builder is God, it's not relative. It's not temporary. That city with foundations does not fall short of perfection, and it is not incomplete and partial. You see, as remarkable as the people I've mentioned are, and do not underestimate my great esteem for all those who work for good in the present life, But we, God's people, have a better rest. As verse 15 says, we are among those who are not thinking of that land from which they had gone out. We do not look to our history for a homeland. Rather, as verse 16 says, we too desire a better country that is a heavenly one. We are a people that look to God's promise that he has prepared for us a city. I've said now several times, that the message of this passage is a simple one. It is a tale of two cities. And the question before us today is, do we believe in the city God is preparing? Do we have faith? Are we assured of the things we hope for? Are we convinced of the things we cannot see? Now, I have an important question for the children here today who are under the age of eight. So if you're over eight, you're disqualified. So let me just see a show of hands. Any, any people under eight out there today? I think I have a few. Okay. <laughs> okay, so if you're under eight, I'm giving you a, a, a one-time and short-lived offer. You can yell in church, Okay. So I want to ask you, how many of you are absolutely positive that Santa Claus exists? Yell out if you believe that Santa Claus exists. Oh, we, we've got a... Fa- oh, there's a hand. We have a hand. Okay. <laughs> the Lutzes believe in Santa Claus. Let me ask you, young Mr. Lutz. Right there, Mr. Lutz. Young Mr. Lutz. Have you seen, have you seen Santa Claus? You haven't, but you believe in him. Okay. He hasn't seen Santa Claus, but he believes in him, just for the record. And I would remind you of Jesus' words, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you back to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe that Jesus has gone to prepare us a room in that heavenly city described so beautifully in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 to 22? Hear these words from Scripture with me. There John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that? Do we actually have faith in that city with foundations? You see, my fear is Brothers and sisters, that we do not. My fear is that there is more faith in one protester on the streets of Iran right now. A protester whose hope is not in the living God, but in an electoral process. Than in me and in most of this church today. My fear, brothers and sisters, is that the reason that our country is turning its back on the church... It's because we in the church believe a lot less in Christ on most days than we do in our rights, in our bank accounts, and in the comforts of our modest homes. And I just get the feeling that we don't sound anything like the Apostle Paul. Writing from prison, put there not for any fault of his own, but for the sake of the gospel, he said, Yes, and I will rejoice, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Where is Paul's anger? Where is his claim of rights? Where is his lamentation for lost comforts or for his poverty or for his health? You see, the Apostle Paul had faith. He saw Christ's city before him as surely as we can see the Alico lights from I-35. And given the choice, he'd take Christ's city over the city of man and woman any day of the week. Do we believe in the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God? Do we have faith? Brothers and sisters, I fear we do not. Perhaps you're listening to me today and you're thinking... No, I do not believe, nor have I ever. I got roped into coming here by some friend. And if you're like many of those millions in America leaving behind your own or your culture's religious past, you might say that you don't have any need for faith. You believe in human decency and democracy, or perhaps you just believe in the simple everyday comforts that come your way. But my feeling is that if you feel that way, you're believing in a figment of the secular imagination. My feeling is that if you really think about it, you believe in eternity. You believe in something that lasts, in a city that has foundations. My conviction is that you want more than just a warm cup of coffee or a warm meal. You want to live. Or perhaps you're in junior high or high school. Perhaps you're thinking, how much longer? Young ladies, what do you think about food? What do you think of yourself when you look in the mirror? Do you know that Christ is at work in you? To make you beautiful both inside and out beyond your wildest dreams? Do you believe that? Really believe that? Do you have more faith in what magazines say or in what Scripture says? 
And young men, do you know that your identity is wrapped up in Christ? Do you know that being good at sports or at music or at academics doesn't make you anything in God's eyes? Do you know that what counts in God's city is humility? Perhaps you're a young woman, a new mother, or an older mother, I say with quotes. Do you, young woman, new mother, or older mother, have faith that God's city is far better than any home you could own? That God's city is much to be preferred to any amount of financial security? Do you have faith that the family you have, or the family you want but don't have, is far, far less important than the family you'll have in the city that is to come? Do you have faith to turn your eyes outward from your happy, pretty family and to invite to dinner a lonely stranger who is, in fact, your brother or sister in the Lord? Or to adopt God's child who lives in an orphanage in Waco or in China? Perhaps you're a young man or a husband or, and we remember you particularly today, a father. Do you worry more about your children's education and job possibilities than, that, than about their fear and love of the Lord? Would you rather them be well-adjusted than recognize that they're strangers and exiles on the earth? Do you spend more time thinking about your work and income and savings than about the family with which God has blessed you? Does your frustration with your job or your preoccupation with a hobby cause you to love your wife as something less than the radiant bride she will be when she stands before Christ? Or perhaps you're old. Perhaps you're thinking, young man, all I have left is faith. And I want to ask you, are you living these, the crown of your years on earth in joy? Do you have faith that fills you with joy when you think about the city God has prepared for you? Are you teaching your children and grandchildren to both live and to die in the hope of that city with foundations? Finally, brothers and sisters, perhaps you or someone you love is struggling with the possibility or reality of serious illness. Perhaps you are afraid or anxious or angry. And I want to ask you, dear brothers and sisters, do you have faith? Do you know that in that city that's coming, there won't be any tears? There won't be any mourning. There won't be any crying. And there won't be any death. Do you believe that today? My fear, brothers and sisters, is that too often we do not have faith. Turn your attention with me, please, if you're following along in your Bibles, to verse 39. There the writer says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now this is a remarkable statement, really. Noah, 
Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, David, Samuel, all the prophets, despite their faith that conquered kingdoms and established nations, were waiting for us. And what is it about us that makes these fathers and mothers of the faith more perfect? Brothers and sisters, it is Christ who reigns and his spirit who remains with us. Look with me at chapter 12, verse 1 and following. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know that Jesus struggled just as we do? Jesus, too, was forced to answer this question, what city do I believe in? God's city or the city of man and woman that I can see with my eyes? For the joy that was set before him, the writer says, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In a slight alterations of Paul's words that we heard earlier in the service, just as in Adam all became faithless, in Christ all will be made faithful. Remember, today's message is a simple one. It is a tale of two cities. But more than this, it is a tale of Christ's faithfulness. What does it mean that Jesus is the founder of our faith? It means that when Jesus went to the cross, he conquered the city of man and woman. He crushed faithlessness in this perfect act of faith. As the Apostle Paul says, Christ did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus proved himself faithful and chose God's city. To put it in the terms of our old Reformed confessions, Jesus is our faithful king. Jesus is our faithful king who, when his hour came, established a kingdom of faithfulness. Jesus is our faithful king who, in looking to the city of God, dealt a fatal blow to the city of man and woman. And what does it mean that Jesus is the perfecter of our faith? We've talked a little about what it means that he's the founder, he's the king, he establishes, but what does it mean that he's the perfecter? It means, brothers and sisters, that even now, even as we sit in this room, the Spirit of God is here, working in us right now, the faithfulness required of us in the face of the challenges we have in this life. In the words of the Apostle John, But if I go, I will send the Spirit to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Do you struggle with faith? Then wait upon the Spirit. Do you struggle with faith? Then have just this much faith. 
that all the faithfulness you need is being provided for you by the living, breathing Spirit of God this morning. Yes, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the one who saw the city of God, who was assured enough of it to give up his place in heaven and to dwell among us. Jesus is the one who saw the city of God and who was convinced enough of it to humble himself to death, even death on a cross. Remember the Apostle Peter, brothers and sisters. On the night before Jesus' arrest, Peter milled about the courtyard of the temple. This apostle had known Jesus from the earliest days of his ministry. He had followed him, touched him, learned from him, and he had been warned by him. Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he did. Three times he proved himself faithless. Yet not many days later, when the risen Jesus stood on the seashore, Peter didn't hesitate. He leapt from the boat like a child, and he swam to shore, and there he swore three times that he loved the risen Jesus. And he did. Decades later, Peter's faithfulness to the city with foundations led him to die a martyr's death. Hear this. When you see the risen Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, you will have all the faith you need. In just a moment, we will celebrate the sacrament of communion. We do this because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he said, I tell you, I will not eat the Passover feast with you until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And taking the cup of wine, he said, From now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. When you come, in just a moment, and you take the bread and the cup, you are taking part in a confession that you believe in the coming kingdom of God. When you come up here and you take the bread and the cup, you're confessing that you believe in the city of God more than you believe in the city of man and woman. When you come up here, you confess that you have faith. But our confession in taking this bread and cup in just a moment is also a means of grace. And that's a fancy way of saying that when you come up here and take the cup as an act of faith, that bread and that cup is also a way that God gives his grace to you and gives his faithfulness to you. When we come in faith to this table, we receive God's grace in a special way. When we come in faith to this table, in just a moment, we are given more faith. When we come in faith to this table, we are given perhaps faith enough to believe in God's city in a new way. So brothers and sisters, if you struggle with faith in the face of sickness, of temptation, If you struggle because you want to have the right house in the right neighborhood or you want your kids to behave in the right way and go to the right schools, if you struggle to believe that you're quite as great as God tells you you are because of Christ, come to this table and taste and see that the Lord Jesus, He is faithful. Taste and see that Christ's city is a city with foundations. Come, brothers and sisters, taste and see that the Lord Jesus Christ 
is the founder and perfecter of your faith. Amen.